Okay, people? Christ is risen? Not bad. The Lord is risen? The Lord is risen? Oh, come on! Okay, I'll, I'll uh, try. You can try that again in a minute. But in the meantime, I'm going to read John chapter 20. Uh, and I invite you to, uh, or part of the first part of John chapter 20, the um, Resurrection Day part. So listen to it and see what it has to say to you. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the foot. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, they turned round, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Anyway, the resurrection story comes home to you today, or came home to you yesterday. Probably, if you do need to have it said, anybody who needs to have it said probably needs to have it said more than once, don't they? <laughs> yeah. My pastor said, um, of course the two guys, they came and looked, and then they're guys, they go and do the next thing, go off home. Whereas Mary is a woman, she sort of hangs around and wants to kind of think about it, and uh, yeah, well maybe, I don't know, but uh, yeah. Okay, now you're going to sing in Hebrew, you ready? Um, and uh, as I flicked through the uh, songs, I thought, oh, that'll do, because it's a rejoicing song, you see, because Havar Nagila means come, let us rejoice. Uh, and Havar Venismacha means, uh, means the same thing, so it's come, let us rejoice and be glad. It's basically all the thing that you're saying all the way through the uh, first part, and then when you get to the kind of middle eight, it's um, uh, come on, brothers and sisters, rejoice with your heart. And that's about all there is to it. Uh, but it's an appropriate response to uh, Resurrection Day. Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Vanismacha, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Vanismacha, 
Havanaranana, 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 Vnismacha. Havanaranana, 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 Vnismacha. Oru, Oru Achim, Oru Achim, Belev Sameach, Oru Achim, Belev Sameach, Oru Achim, Belev Sameach, Oru Achim, Belev Sameach, Oru Achim, Oru Achim, Belev Sameach. Now we'll do it quickly, right? <laughs> Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Vanismara. Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Vanismara. Hava Naranana, Hava Naranana, Hava Naranana, Vanismara. Hava Naranana, Hava Naranana, Hava Naranana, Vanismara. Oro. Oroachim, Oroachim, Belev Sameach, Oroachim, Belev Sameach, Oroachim, Belev Sameach, Oroachim, Belev Sameach, Oroachim, Oroachim, Belev Sameach. Not bad for some psychologists! <laughs> Gracious God, we thank you for the reason for rejoicing that Easter Day gives us. Thank you for the privilege of being glad yesterday in the fact that Jesus uh, is alive, that Jesus came back from the dead that Jesus appeared uh, to Mary, that Jesus comes to us uh, and says, be at peace. And for those of us who are fretting, we pray for you to give us peace in our hearts and to encourage us with the fact that Jesus is alive as the first fruits of the dead. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, there's the roster. Don't mix it up with your strawberries. Um, next Monday evening, I think it says in the syllabus that if some of you want to come round to our house for dessert after class, um, we will uh, make some scones and I will teach you how to drink tea if you don't know how to do that. Um, are there some people who'd like, who'd like to do that next week? Okay, right, uh, you're on then. Um, so I shall commission the scones. <laughs> um, while I think about it, um, I'll mention that um, my, my wife Anne, who will, will love having you there... Um, uh, you'll have to take that on trust from me because uh, she has MS uh, and she can't now speak um, and she hasn't got the body language to, um, to tell you that she's glad to be there. Um, but I believe uh, she will be because she is a people person. Um, she's historically been much more of a people person than I was. She was a therapist herself. She was a, um, a, a medical doctor and then became a psychiatrist. Um, and a psychotherapist. Um, but you won't be able to tell that now. Uh, but um, she will be glad that you're there. Um, it's, you, you can't have a conversation with her because she isn't able to respond. But um, do try and say hello and tell her who you are and what you're doing and things like that. Um, because even though the next day she won't remember, remember um, at that moment I think it will mean something to her.
but it's uh, it's kind of hard because you, you won't get uh, a response, but um, see if you can do it. So in the first half this evening, I'm, I'm going to talk, as it says on page 26, about uh, history and story. Um, and uh, then we'll look in particular at the um, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar um, and Jonah stories in the second half tonight. Um, so, uh, page 26, where it says history and story. Uh, last week I was talking about the significance of narrative because it tells you about the, um, the facts um, that constitute the gospel. Uh, and I tried to, to talk about the, the fact that that's um, the reason why the Bible has authority. Uh, somebody in a posting, in an in a email they sent me, um, uh, told me that they hadn't really got that. They, hadn't, I did, they didn't kind of understand what I meant, really. Uh, so let me try and say it again, and probably I'll fail again, but we'll see. Um, what I was trying to suggest was this, um, that the, the basic thing about Christian faith is, is, is the facts about what God did for us in Christ. Uh, and the reason why the Bible has an authority that the Koran doesn't have is that the Koran can't tell you about Jesus. For the sake of argument, all the things in the Koran could be true. I think they probably aren't. But for the sake of argument, it's perfectly possible to imagine um, a book full of things that are true, but they still don't tell you the gospel. They still don't tell you those key things. And, and, and the, the, the truest of devotional books, the most profound book of spirituality, um, wouldn't, could never have the authority that the Bible has because it couldn't tell you about uh, the gospel story itself. It couldn't tell you about what God did for us in Christ. Um, and uh, the, the basis of the authority, the reason why the Bible has an authority, uh, is, is because it can tell you that story. The person who uh, sent that message to me uh, was a bit puzzled at the fact that uh, elsewhere in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, as well as narrative kind of statements, you do get um, straight kind of theological statements about the nature of God and so on. And of course that's true. Um, so that what you, what you get within Scripture is both um, narrative that tells you the nature of that gospel story and then teaching that uh, expounds the significance of that gospel story for you. I'm using the word gospel story, if you like, in a broad sense, uh, to include the Old Testament, to include the Old Testament's beginning part of the gospel story. Uh, in the Old Testament's beginning part of the gospel story, then it's not just narrative. You've also got the teaching um, in the Pentateuch about how people ought to behave, and then you've got the... Uh, the kind of things the prophets say, which are full of theology as well as things about um, how life ought to work out. And in the New Testament, you've got Paul and other people spelling out the implications of that gospel story and, and talking in sort of abstract theology. So there is that in the Bible as well. But even when, they, uh, when the prophets or Paul uh, expound the nature uh, of theological truth, they do it by expanding the significance of that thing that God did uh, in the Exodus or in the Exile or in what God did in Christ. What, what God did in Christ. Um, the, the epistles could never, as it were, survive without the Gospels. The Gospels, perhaps, couldn't survive without the epistles as well, precisely because um, there are certain things you achieve by means of narrative um, in talking about the events in such a way as includes their significance, as I'll say in a minute, but focusing on the events. And therefore it's useful to have 
the epistles that spell out the significance of the events. So the gospels need the epistles, the epistles need the, but the epistles need the gospels, is the point I'm making at the moment. If it wasn't for the fact of what God did in Christ, the story that's told in the gospels, then the theology of the epistles would collapse. It, it would have lost its, its, its basis and its content. Um, the uh, most significant thing about the Bible is the fact that it tells you about what God did in order to bring about our salvation. Another way to put it would be to say this. In, in very much modern theological discussion, the key um, way of looking at the significance uh, of Scripture is in terms of revelation. And um, that's, that's okay. The Bible itself talks about revelation. Um, it's, uh, the, the focus of interest in theology is revelation of truth. And if you're only interested in revelation of truth, then there, could be, there can be revelation of truth anywhere. But the more important thing about um, the Gospel, about, about, the, about the, New, the New Testament story, uh, is not that, it tell, not that it gives you some revelation, well, except in the sense that it tells you about redemption. What Jesus came to do was to bring about redemption, not revelation. Uh, I am prepared to argue, I think I might have said this last week, but I, get a bit, I, I, get, I would get into a bit of trouble um, with it, with theologians, but that wouldn't worry me too much. But I'd be prepared to argue that Jesus didn't actually reveal anything. Every, every, anything that Jesus said was already actually there in the scriptures or in Jewish tradition. Jesus didn't show something new about God. What Jesus came to do was to embody who God was. To be God. Uh, so that you are grasped in a new way. You are almost, almost as it were, assaulted in a new way. Confronted in a new way. By who God is. Because God is there incarnate in front of you. But... Uh, I don't think when Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, after, or after the ascension, after the Holy Spirit had come, if you'd said to the disciples, okay, now what do you know about God that you didn't know before? I think they'd be puzzled. Because what Jesus came to do was to embody um, who they knew God was, but actually to embody who that God was, and in that sense didn't bring a new revelation. But what Jesus did do that was new was actually die for people. Uh, and that's the only point in the history of the universe where God has come and died in order that we, be, we might be put right with God. And that's why the Bible has this authority because it's the, um, it's the book that tells you the story of that. You can't learn about that from anywhere else except unless it's some other source that is attempting to expound the significance of that. But only from um, the Old and New Testament scriptures can you know the story of how God set about the redemption of the world. Um, that's what I mean by saying that um, the uh, scriptures of the Old and New Testament um, have an authority that the Quran or some other kind of document could never have because it could, that couldn't tell you uh, the Jesus story. Now, uh, the aspect of that that I was talking about last week then uh, was the importance of the Bible uh, being a basically historical story. It didn't need to be uh, infallible, inerrant, in order to fulfill that function, in order to be a, in order to be a valid witness. Uh, it didn't have, witnesses don't have to be infallible. They have to be basically right, otherwise you're in a mess. 
But they, did, they didn't actually need, your, your witnesses don't need to be inerrant or infallible. Maybe the Bible is, but it didn't actually, didn't, it didn't need to be. It does need to be basically factual. Uh, what I'm coming to tonight is the other side to that coin. That is, uh, on the one hand, it does give you the facts. On the other hand, it uh, gives you the facts in a way that interprets them for you. So, at the top of page 26, I've said uh, that the uh, Bible, being a witnessing tradition, suggests interpretation as well as factuality. When a witness uh, tells you about something that's happened, then the witness tells it from their angle. They, give, they, they, they tell you what they saw. For the sake of argument, let's suppose that you've got three or four people who are all witnesses of the same event. And supposing they all tell you what happened. And supposing all that they tell you is accurate and factual, nevertheless, probably they'll all be different. Because they'll tell it from different angles. And uh, when something gets passed on as a tradition, uh, it gets... Um, it develops new angles because it's told in such a way that it can reach the people who um, it's seeking to communicate with. So it's not surprising that when you uh, look at the scriptural narratives, the ones that are historical, uh, you find that they have a slant to them that um, expresses a particular perspective on the events that they talk about and orients them to the people who need to be reached by them. Uh, in the Old Testament, then the books of Chronicles and the books of Kings give you an example. The uh, books of Chronicles and the, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles, to put it more the right way around, as Kings comes first, both tell you the, tell you the story um, of the period from uh, David and Solomon uh, through to the fall of Jerusalem, uh, with the division of the nation of Israel into two separate nations happening halfway through. They both tell you the same story. But they tell you it with a different slant. Um, and uh, you can illustrate that you, for, if you look, for instance, at the story of the, um, the account of the prayer that Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple near the beginning. Or if you look at the actual account of the fall of Jerusalem at the end of the story in Kings and Chronicles, they both tell the story very differently. And they do that because of the people that they're seeking to tell the story to. Remember that when they're telling the story, they are, they are if you like, uh, they are kind of preaching the gospel. They're seeking to reach people with this story. They're not merely seeking to give you uh, a historical account of something. They are doing that. But they're also seeking to uh, bring the message home to a congregation on the, in the way that they tell the story. Um, but the congregation that co the chronicles and the chron congregations that Kings and Chronicles are addressing are very different congregations. The books of Kings are written uh, for the sake of people who are in exile, uh, who, who's, uh, that generation themselves and their parents and their grandparents are people who caused the exile to happen by virtue of the way that they worshipped other gods um, and uh, didn't live by faithfulness uh, in relation to one another in their community uh, and rebelled against the Babylonians whom God had put in charge of them. Uh, and so, eventually, the Babylonian axe falls upon them and many of the people from Judah are taken off into exile. And the Books of Kings tells the story in a way that indicates uh, the wrong that people had done that led to the exile. 
um, there uh, is uh, a German theologian called Gerhard von Rad, who called um, the story of, in the books of Kings an act of praise at the justice of the judgment of God. That's one word in German. Uh, it's a, a Gerichtsdoxologia. Uh, but, but in order to, to say it in English, you have to say eight words or whatever that was. Uh, an act of praise at the justice of the judgment of God. I often think that, I don't know what's actually the case, but I think that if you write a dissertation in German, you ought only have to write half as many words as you do in English. Whereas conversely, if you do a dissertation in Spanish or French, you ought to write twice as many words, because you know French and Spanish sentences tend to require twice as many words as English ones. And someday I need to do some research on that. But anyway, uh, it's... Uh, uh, the books of kings are an act of praise at the justice of the judgment of God. That is, what they do is they say, they say this is our story. And, and the people who are um, writing this story are inviting the Judeans in the exile to say, yes, that is our story. And if the Judeans do say, yes, that's our story, then they are thereby giving their act of praise at the justice of the judgment of God. They're saying, yes. Uh, that was God's judgment that came upon us, and we deserved it. Uh, and uh, thus the, the story is told in rather a rather gloomy way. And it comes to a, a pretty gloomy conclusions, really, conclusion, really. There's the tiniest glimpse um, of hope in the last paragraph, because they'd obviously um, tried out uh, this narrative on focus groups, and they'd said that it's really too gloomy an ending, and so they'd gone back into the studio and scratched some bits together and put this extra tiny paragraph at the end so you don't feel quite so bad, but it's very minimal, the good news at the end of Kings. Chronicles is rather different. It's much more upbeat. It does acknowledge the sinfulness of that period, uh, but it uh, talks about the way in which God uh, fulfilled his promises in restoring people and bringing them back from exile. So it gives you a much more upbeat, proper Hollywood ending, does Chronicles. Then you can go out the movie theatre and think, oh, that's okay, there is hope after all. For all the gloominess, I'm going out and I'm kind of going like this, it's okay. And the reason for the difference is that Chronicles was written uh, another century or two later. Um, when uh, it's not written to people who are, uh, have been under, under God's judgment and deserved it, it's written for people who's, uh, who came back from exile um, and who have um, been able to restore the to rebuild the temple and restore life to some extent, but who are still in rather a state um, of discouragement because of um, the kind of pressures there are on them in that post-exilic period. You can read about that in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance. So they need encouragement. So Chronicles tells the same story as Kings, but tells it in such a way as to provide encouragement for the people for whom it's written. Kings tells the story in order to uh, encourage people, in order to get people to take responsibility for the sin that has caused the exile. Chronicles tells the same story in order to encourage people to be um, thrilled by the way in which God is, um, is present with them in the temple and how it's been possible to rebuild it and that kind of thing. Both have got then a... a, a, a a historical story to tell, but the two uh, books interpret the story in very different ways. The beginning of Matthew's Gospel I've put um, on the sheet. Um, I mentioned that last week, the, the list of names. Uh, and it's a list of names that needs to be basically historical, 
Because it's telling you about how Jesus, uh, it's giving you kind of evidence for being able to take Jesus as the Messiah. So if this genealogy doesn't really work, then Jesus is in trouble. Because he hasn't got the basic qualifications for being the Messiah. Matthew is saying, it's okay, he's got them. So here's Abraham, and here's David, and here's the exile, and you can trace uh, Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham, so it's okay. Uh, it's only okay if, that, if, if the genealogy basically is true. Um, but, but what Matthew actually says... at the end of the genealogy is, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Oh, that's very neat. Yeah, too neat to be kind of not to be suspicious. Because if you go back and read the Old Testament story, there were lots more generations than that. But Matthew has produced the genealogy um, in the way that you might paint uh, a stained glass picture. You don't paint a stained glass picture. The way that you might paint a picture or create a stained glass, uh, a piece of stained glass, in which you don't seek simply to depict exactly what happened, but uh, you um, bring out the meaning of it um, and you make it more kind of organised than it, than it might have been and so on. So Matthew, in the very way that he begins his gospel, combines that interest with things that actually happened uh, with uh, making it a story um, that, that works in a neat sort of way. The nature of the biblical narrative, then, is to combine interest in facts with seeking to bring home the significance of the facts to people. The implication of that for interpretation, as I put on the sheet, is interpreting the Bible um, suggests an interest in the way the story is told as well as the facts behind it. We are inclined to think, maybe, at first, that what matters uh, is to have eyewitness... Uh, having eyewitness testimony is all that matters... But actually, with any event, it's only over a period of time that the significance um, of the event emerges. You might have thought it was best to have in the Gospels things written by people who were actually there. But probably, for the most part, the, th the Gospels were not written by people who were actually there. They were written a generation later. Because it becomes more clear what it was all about when you're a generation later. Uh, the... Uh, Eyewitness testimony is important, um, being able to reflect on the way that the significance of events has emerged over time is also important. Um, throughout Genesis to Kings, you get both facts and interpretation. But there are more facts and less interpretation the more you move on and get nearer the writer's day. So I don't think there are many hard facts in Genesis 1. Uh, I think that talking about God create, creating the world by doing a week's work and having a day off is a picture. There's facts in the sense that God did create the world and created in a systematic way and it was good and things like that. But things that, that, that a camera would have caught if it had been there, not so many. There's, there's more um, interpretation and less fact in Genesis 1. When you get down to the end of Two Kings with that account of the fall of Jerusalem, it's all facts and no interpretation. Virtually no interpretation. Uh, all the way through the story, there is in changing ratios uh, a combination of facts and interpretation. More facts, less interpretation, the more you move on to get uh, nearer the writer's day. The Gospels, it's been said, uh, are written, were written backwards. 
That is, they were written in light of the resurrection. Uh, they, they, weren't, they aren't the result of somebody journaling all the way through the story. Uh, and you can sometimes see that when you're uh, reading the Gospels. When that, for instance, sometimes when they talk about, the way that they talk about Jesus is the way that they would have talked about Jesus in light of the resurrection rather than at the time. There are different ways of, uh, and that comes out sometimes in the arrangement of the Gospels. Um, in, in Mark, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth comes as a climax of the story. In Luke, Jesus' resurrection at Nazareth comes at the beginning of the story. Now, chronologically, Mark must be right. But by putting the rejection of Nazareth near the beginning of the story, Luke tells you where the story is going. Tells you how to read it. Uh, we're familiar, again, in movies with the way in which they'll move between... Um, flash, they'll have flashbacks, they'll move forward and they'll move back and so on. Uh, the Gospels do that, not because they reckon it'll confuse you, which is what sometimes I'm inclined to think the movies are trying to do, uh, but because they reckon that you'll actually get the point about the story uh, if you read this bit before you read that bit, even though chronologically things work the other way around. Or here's um, one of my... Um, a favourite example of this process of interpretation going on between the Gospels, uh, which was one of the first bits of redaction criticism when that was invented back in the 60s or something. Um, the reference on the sheet. Um, the, the two, the accounts in, in Mark and in Matthew of Jesus' stilling of the storm. Now, um, Here's Mark's version. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the, in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now you can imagine that and you can um, picture that as actually happening in Jesus' lifetime. That seems to me to be entirely plausible. But now listen to Matthew's version. When Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Um, that's about the same. But then Matthew puts in some extra bits. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now those extra bits that Matthew has included there are two little stories about following. And then when he goes on to, to talk about them getting to the boat, whereas Mark had said, um, leaving the boat behind, they took him with them into the boat, Matthew says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now that might be a triviality, but it's, it's interesting at least, that he's just told you a couple of things about following, in the sense of following Jesus. And now here are the disciples following him into the boat. 
And eventually you're going to discover that this is actually a story about what happens when you follow Jesus. A windstorm arose on the sea, so great that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. In Mark, he says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In Matthew, he says, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Teacher is what you'd call Jesus in his lifetime. Lord is what you call him after the resurrection. Do you not care that we're perishing? That's what it's natural to say when you're in the boat. Save us? That's what you say when you're a Christian. That's the, Christian, the great Christian word, save. So that Matthew is retelling the story in a way that shows how it works within um, post-resurrection Christian life. When you follow Jesus and then you find you're, in the, you're overwhelmed by a storm and in the middle of the storm you cry out, Lord, save us. And he said to them, why are you afraid you have little faith? In Mark, he says, um, have you still no faith? In Matthew, he says, you have little faith. Because if you're talking about Christians, it's a bit of an insult to say you haven't got any faith at all. But you can just say that you're of little faith. So again, in the way in which um, Matthew has told the story, he's brought home its significance for uh, the congregation um, that are reading this story, who are Christians and who are able to see then what this story has got to say to them. The facts are still basically the same, but the story has been reworked in order to bring home its message. Uh, what you've got in John's Gospel then is, a, if you like, a kind of extreme version of that. In your questions, um, there were several I men mentioned last week. You know, did, well, did Jesus really not say those I am sayings? Um, I assume that Jesus didn't say those I am sayings. It's okay by me if he didn't. Um, what, that they are, as somebody said in their formulating of a question at the beginning of the quarter, uh, the result of the Holy Spirit's um, ongoing guiding of the church in how to think about Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit inspires that way of expressing, uh, of expressing who Jesus is. To say, I am the bread of life, or I am the good shepherd, or something. Yeah, that's, that's a, a proper um, working out of the implications of the kind of things that Jesus did say, and even more of the kind of things that Jesus was. So it's again a fruit of that process of the interaction between facts and interpretation. Now, I dare say that some of you uh, find that hard um, and feel that the scriptures or the sayings lose authority if that's the case. <coughs> if you're right, then um, I believe that Jesus did say those things. Um, because, because God wouldn't... If, 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 God, if God agrees with you and God disagrees with me, which is fine by me, uh, then God wouldn't have inspired John to put onto Jesus' lips those things that Jesus never said. Uh, it doesn't worry me. If it worries you, then just say, it's okay, that John Golding A guy, he must be too liberal for words. I'm not going to take any notes of him. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's fine. Uh, because maybe you're right. Um, uh, uh, either way, then uh, I'm happy to, to live with those I am sayings. I believe that they are... Uh, truths that the Holy Spirit inspired the sayings of, the saying of, whether the Holy Spirit inspired them as it were on the lips of Jesus, or whether the Holy Spirit inspired them uh, as reflections of the church. 
that about factuality uh, and um, interpretation, the, the importance of both of those. The second of the headings on that page um, 26, how stories work. What a story does, uh, whether it's a factual story or a fictional story, is create a world before people's eyes and ears. What a story does is portray the world in which we live, but portray it arranged in a meaningful pattern, in contrast to the fragmented pieces that make up our moment-by-moment living. A story will often portray a better world and a worse world than the one we usually live with, and demand that we keep steadily looking at them both. That's, that's a quotation from um, a guy called Northrop Fry, who wrote a book called The Educated Imagination. So he's not talking about Bible stories in particular, but stories, what stories in general do. They portray our world, the world arranged into a meaningful pattern. Often a better, a, a, both a better and a worse world than the one we usually live with, uh, and they thus demand that we keep looking steadfastly at them both. And what they do is they seek to uh, draw us into that world. And the world, which if you read um, a story like the story of Ruth, um, or the story of Esther, or Jesus' stories, uh, they can both attract us and make us hesitate to be drawn into them. Um, the stories in the Bible um, are both realistic and visionary, uh, and both of those aspects of them are hard. The stories in the Bible are ruthlessly true to the suffering and the sin that run through life and history. Uh, and, and that draws us in because we want to be able to face those realities. Uh, but they also make us draw back. Supposing that, they, that, that those realities can't be faced, can't be comprehended, can't be overcome. Supposing we're better off living in denial. Denial is a very important survival mechanism, right? Stories can both reassure and challenge, support and confront, reinforce and unsettle. The Bible portrays a world in which um, the realities of sin and suffering can be faced and comprehended and overcome because of God being, in, being active in that world. And if we are uh, to live in that world that the Bible describes, then we have to be willing to be drawn into it. Uh, if we do allow ourselves to be drawn into it, uh, then that's when we come face to face with God and with Jesus, see them active in our world. Uh, when we read these stories, then they invite us to... Um, live in them uh, as the real world, even when it contrasts with the, with the apparently real world that we experience. They invite us to make their story our story. Biblical interpretation then involves not attempting to, tr- to translate scripture into our categories, but redescribing our experience in the light of the scriptural story. Now, that way of putting it um, goes back to this guy I put on the sheet, Hans Fry, um, who wrote uh, this book called The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative, uh, in which he, it's, it's a kind of book about his, the history of uh, attitudes to the Bible, really, and the biblical interpretation, uh, in which he uh, suggests that until the 18th century, 
people assumed uh, that there was a, a, a unity between the story that the scriptures told uh, and the events that actually happened, and also a unity between the story that the scriptures told and our story. So they can move um, uh, quite easily, directly, without any kind of gaps uh, from uh, the, the assumption on the one hand of a oneness between the scriptural story uh, and the events, and a oneness between the scriptural story and our story, that um, it, it uh, assumes that what we have to do is to set our story in the light of the scriptural story. Uh, the trouble is, as I mentioned about Fry, I think, two weeks ago, uh, in the 18th century, both those two assumptions collapsed. People became uh, aware of that gap between the scriptural story um, and the events that uh, the scriptural story refers to. That gap that you're often um, finding yourselves having to look at in studying the Gospels, for instance. Um, and so, the world of scholarship had to decide which, which it was interested in. Was it interested in the story that the Bible told, or was it interested in the events that the story referred to? And there was no contest, because uh, history um, was so important in the context of modernity. And so, for two centuries, uh, the focus of biblical study came to be on getting behind the biblical story to the events. Um, and only in the last uh, generation or two, in the last 30, 50 years. Um, partly because of an awareness that that never led anywhere, um, have people come back to seeking to, to, uh, to read the biblical uh, story itself. The other gap is the gap uh, between the scriptural story and our story. Where again, got, things got turned upside down. Instead of assuming that interpretation means that we fit our story into the Bible story, Interpretation came to mean we fit the Bible story into our story. We are the ones who decide what the real truth is. The way we see things is the right way to see things. Um, taking the Bible story seriously uh, means that we uh, go back to looking at our story in the light of the scriptural story rather than the other way around. In um, bringing the significance of the story home, to, to recognise that there is a distinction between the biblical story and the events, if anything then, as I've been suggesting uh, just now, enables you to see more clearly what the story is doing. That is, when you compare Matthew and Mark, and you see that Matthew is being less historical than Mark, it doesn't make you say, let's throw Matthew away. Well, that's what, that's what it did a hundred years ago. Uh, but now uh, it's possible to say, no, that doesn't make me throw Matthew away. It doesn't make me deny the fact that there is that difference there. But I can see how in the very uh, adaptation of the facts to, a, to, a con to the congregation listening to this story, the significance of the story is being brought home. Uh, that sometimes then non -historic, something that's non-historical can actually make a historical point quite well. Um, as I put on the sheet, the usefulness, there's a usefulness of the parabolic in a historical story. Uh, you may have seen the movie Chariots of Fire, which includes a scene uh, when uh, Harold Abrahams wins a race running around a particular Cambridge um, quadrangle in a college. The scene is a fiction. There was no such race. Uh, and yet the scene is... Uh, does give you a true impression of the significance of that man. 
You can use facts in order to convey untruth. But paradoxically, you can use fiction to represent historical truth. Uh, you find within scripture imaginative portrayal of people's thinking. You find, I've suggested already, an imaginative account of creation. I call the opening chapters of Genesis historical parable. They're not parables like Jesus' parables in which there doesn't need to be a particular good Samaritan whoever did that thing. The parable works even if there was no such person. They're not uh, non-historical parables like that. But they are historical parables in that they, they represent a parabolic way of telling the story about creation. History is limited to describing what has been. Parable can describe what could be. Or as I put it earlier, um, it's characteristic of narratives to describe things as more awful and, but also more promising uh, than the way we often experience things. So throughout the biblical story, it combines fact and interpretation. But it's very hard to distinguish a story that's meant to be taken as fact and one that's meant to be taken as parable. And that's what students always want me to tell them. Okay, how do I know uh, when it's fact and when it's parable? And often I don't know. I mean, I think, I, uh, with that Matthew and Mark example, I think I know. I have a working hypothesis. I think Mark is telling you pretty much what happened and when I compare Matthew with that, I can see the way in which Matthew is uh, slanting that story to, to his audience. But that's, um, that's an easy example, and much, at least of my um, uh, kind of stock in trade in the Old Testament, it doesn't work like that. When I'm reading stories about Abraham, say, these Abraham and Hagar and Sarah stories, um, uh, and for that matter, the Jonah story, I guess, then in both cases, I reckon that there is something that happened behind these stories, in both cases, I assume the story we've got is a story that's been retold and interpreted and, uh, and so on, and that it isn't what the camera would have caught. But where in between their fact and pure fiction the story comes, I don't know. Um, so uh, I apologise, I don't know. I don't think anybody else knows either, so it's not just that I'm incompetent. Um, and it doesn't worry me, because um, it, it is the story that God was happy to have in the scriptures. It is God's inspired word. And in order to learn from it, I, I don't need to know within the story where's the boundary between the facts and the interpretation. It's not, for instance, you see, that the uh, real inspired bit is the facts and the made-up bit uh, is the, uh, isn't, isn't actually inspired. The whole thing is God's inspired word. And so I learn from the whole thing and I don't kind of think about the, uh, which bits are factual uh, and which bits are uh, showing interpretation. Well, let me stop for a minute and uh, turn over the page and uh, you'll see at the top of the, on the next page I've put some questions which um, you can, which will have five minutes for you to talk with the person next to you about. Do you agree that the phenomena in the Old Testament and New Testament narratives indicate that they're not wholly factual? Do you agree that we judge whether the scriptural story is relevant rather than seeking to see our story in its light? What do you think is the special power of the parables in the Gospels? Do you agree that parabolic elements elsewhere in scripture might be an advantage rather than a weakness? Do you agree that it's hard to tell a factual story from a fictional one? 
does the idea that there's non-historical material in the Bible conflict with its being God's word? Uh, talk with the guy, the one or two people on either side of you for five minutes about that, about any of those that, are, that interest you. Okay? I shouldn't have. I, I should have. I shouldn't have been so stupid as to phrase those questions as yes or no questions. So one basic thing about setting questions is not set questions as yes or no questions. Yeah. 
talking to one another or are you bored? Okay. Do you like talking to one another or are you bored? Like. 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 Okay, keep going. Then another five minutes. Go on. Then. Why? Yeah. 
Raise anything, say anything in response to any of those questions or ask anything in relation to them? Hello? Well, it's a bit like saying, why have human beings got two legs? I mean, just, it's just a fact about human beings, isn't it? Uh, and uh, it, it, I mean, it's part of the, the, the very nature of being human means, um, I mean, your life has a story, has a shape, has a beginning. You know, you get, you get born, you grow up, you uh, become an adult, you do jobs, you maybe get married, you maybe have children, you get old, you die. It, there's a kind of uh, plot, a story shape to that. Um, and when you're in the midst of it, you you wonder, what's the story shape of my life? You know, I can look back and I can see, and I can look forward, but I can't see. I mean, I don't know exactly what the future will be. And so, sto a story, uh, uh, other stories help me to get a handle on the storiness of my life. Something like it's it's just yeah, built into being human, isn't it? Um, but I think. Um, I mean, we're much more aware of that fact. Uh, I mean, everybody's always talking about narrative and story and whatnot nowadays. Um, uh, we're much more aware of that, and and that what's interesting is that then gives us some clearer insight on why the Bible should be full of stories than I think uh, was once the case. Uh, and and when um, theology used to focus much more on the the discursive. Um, they are the systematic and so on, uh, and and rather neglect the story aspect to it, and thereby miss that thing that's so uh, so human. I'm, I'm wondering if that's not cultural, or was it cultural? Because uh, cultures like like when they're writing the Bible oh, yeah, or yeah, the Native yeah, American, yeah, sure, sure. You know, it was Western. It's it's modernity we're talking about. Yes, sure, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. It's a particular. I mean, we, we have to keep reminding ourselves uh, that we belong to a really weird um, segment of human history and experience. Uh, at least those of us who are Westerners and live in the context of modernity, post-modernity, we are really weird. Now, we assume we're the norm, but actually we're strange. We're odd. Yeah. 
yeah. Okay. Sorry, somebody else was. Okay. Um, that that we we make ourselves the norm. So when we read a scriptural story, the question is, does it fit in with what we think? Um, rather than the assumption that would have been made 200 years ago, which is the scriptural story is the norm, and the question is whether do we fit in with it, not does it fit in with us. Um, yeah. Okay, let me uh, do the bottom bit of page 27 and then, then we'll have the break. Given uh, the significance of story and what it's trying to do, how do we go about interpreting stories, interpreting narrative? Um, the, the, in the context of modernity, uh, I've uh, suggested just now, the classic thing to do was to look behind the story for the actual events. Uh, and from an apologetic point of view, there's something to be said for that. Uh, that is, we, we do need to uh, have some assurance that the gospel story is a historical story. But when you're seeking to see what Matthew has got to say to you, um, then uh, abandoning Matthew's story for the sake of the facts behind Matthew's story, uh, you will probably miss the, the message of the story. Um, alongside that concern with the historical events behind the story, in the context of, uh, of modernity, was the question about when the narrative was written. I mean, the first, the first question that we tend to assume we need to ask about a biblical a part of the Bible is, when was it written? Uh, what was the author trying to do? What was the author's intention? Uh, and there's a kind of paradox here um, that the books like the prophets and, and Paul's epistles, we more often than not, we pretty often know who wrote it and when. Uh, and so we can deal with those questions. But with the books that talk about events... Old Testament narrative and New Testament narratives, they don't tell you, generally speaking, who wrote them, when and why. Um, and, and so there's all the vast literature that, that gets produced um, in order to seek to establish who wrote a narrative, when and why. And that um, comes out with different sort of results with regard to the Old Testament and with regard to uh, the Gospels and Acts. But, but it's the same problem, as it were, as the, you're working against the grain of the material because the books themselves don't tell you who were the people for whom they've written or who wrote them. Uh, and, and when you're looking at to get to know what the author's aim was in writing, uh, it can be, well, not only frustrating, but actually narrow down what you find there. Um, that seems to me to be the case uh, when one looks at little Old Testament stories like, uh, like Ruth or, for that matter, like Jonah. Um, that if you want to find the one answer to the question, what is this book about, why did the author write it, then you'll miss the other 19 interesting things that this book says. Maybe you've had the experience after a movie of walking home with some people and then having a, a discussion, even an argument, about what that movie was about because there was lots in it. Um, and seeking, seeking to get at when the story was written and what the intention of the author was um, probably is either frustrating or narrows down uh, what there is to be learnt there. Thirdly, then, um, you're, it's more promising to look at the narrative itself, to look for its structure. 
uh, how, how the plot of it works, how characters in it are portrayed. And you don't need to know uh, when it was written in order to be able to do that. Or you can look for structures underneath the surface of the narrative, which is what structuralism does. One of the versions of structuralism says, I think, there are only seven stories. All the stories in the world have variants on those seven. Well, you've been to the movies and you've seen those, haven't you? Yeah. Or you can look for the ways that the stories, de- that the book, that the story deconstructs. Deconstruction um, is obviously a negative sounding word, but it isn't necessarily as negative as it sounds. Because very often it's the case that the nature of truth is to be complex. Uh, and so when you find a story asserting something, it's worth looking upside down at what the opposite truth is and seeing if secretly that's there too. So, um, for instance, the story of Job is concerned to establish that uh, you don't serve God for what you can get out of it and you can't infer from when somebody's suffering um, that they did wrong in order, as it were, to earn that suffering that there isn't a link uh, of a tight kind between serving God and prospering and disobeying God and being in trouble. And yet the book as a whole in the end affirms that because Job, who's the good guy, gets re-established at the end and, uh, and everything is nice at the end again. Because, the, uh, and, and what that shows you is there are two truths here, both of which have, uh, have got something about them. Uh, and the upfront, one of the aspects of that truth is upfront in the story, but lurking behind the corner within the story is the opposite truth. The story deconstructs because if you take it to, to be simply saying one thing because it's also saying the opposite because both those things need to be said. Or uh, look at the way the story was told by somebody who wanted to do something to some people. Even if you can't date uh, an author, the author was trying to achieve something. Um, the, the book of Joel uh, in the Old Testament uh, has been dated in every century, I think from the 9th to the 3rd century at least, um, because it doesn't, doesn't give you any information. M- most of the prophetic books tell you not only the name of the guy, but also who his dad was and who the kings were around in his time. So that's easy. Joel doesn't do that. And yet you can see what Joel is seeking to do. That is, Joel is seeking to get people to turn back to God. Now, we can't tell whether he was doing that in century 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, or 3. But what Joel was trying to do, we can see without knowing the answer to those questions. What kind of people were trying to do something to what kind of people for one purpose? How did they try to communicate? How did they draw the audience to take part in the story? That's one of the things about the stories that you read for today, that you often have to provide the links. Not to provide them arbitrarily, but to look to see what the links are, to fill the gaps uh, in the story. And we do that in part by what we bring to stories, which I've said already is something that is uh, both an advantage and a disadvantage, but anyway you can't help it, so you might as well be aware of it. Uh, We read stories as who we are, as the people who come out of the communities out of which we come. Uh, And that is both our asset and our liability. 
we can't help but read them in light of who we are. Uh, again, uh, it, when you come out of a movie and you discuss what the movie was about with your friends, you may well see how, you may well find yourself saying, well, you would think that. That is what you'd see in the story. Um, and that's okay, uh, because if you want to appreciate what was going on in that movie, then it's useful to look at it through the eyes of somebody else. Because you're looking at it as who you are and through your eyes, doesn't mean that you're, or doesn't have to mean that you're reading things in. Uh, what it does mean uh, is you're only seeing certain of the things that are there. Uh, and so going with other people and then being able to discuss it with them enables you to see some things that you wouldn't otherwise have seen because with their angle of vision, they're able to see some extra things. Now, sometimes the process of interpretation has been um, described rather, um, I was going to say cynically, and I don't mean it quite as badly as that, sceptically, gloomily, as involving listeners making sense of stories. Um, as if then the story doesn't have a sense, and we are the ones that provide it with the sense. But when we talk about making sense of something, that isn't usually what we mean. Uh, if you're trying to make sense of your client, you don't mean you're imposing a sense, you're bringing a sense to it. You mean you're seeking to discover the sense that was there. The phrase making sense of something is thus um, a misleading one, really. We do need to make sense of stories, but we make sense of them in light of what they themselves are. The stories themselves have a sense. But they do also have... Um, uh, some openness about them. All texts have got some degree of openness. Um, if every point in a story was, uh, was made explicit, the story would never be finished, which is more or less what John says at the end of his Gospel, where he said, well, if we told you everything that Jesus did, then the world wouldn't, would be full of the books. Seminaries, pro schedules, programs would be even fuller than they are. So, for instance, the stories of, the, of, of Saul and David in the Old Testament uh, have been interpreted in a variety of different ways um, as an indication that there is some openness and ambiguity about them. All texts, all texts have got some openness about them. Some, some texts, like those stories about Saul and David, have got more openness than others have got. Um, to put it another way, some stories are very rich and complex. Part of the greatness of some stories is a richness about them that makes it impossible to encapsulate them in a simple formula. This story is about X. I think the Jonah story is like that. There are lots of things uh, in that story. It's a very rich story. That isn't to imply that there's no such thing uh, as a wrong understanding. Um, that is, there can be things that you could claim the Jonah story was about which it is not actually about. Um, so there can be a range of things that are there, but there's an even wider range of things that aren't there. Um, and then, uh, finally, uh, a story may have one meaning, but many significances. And I find that a, a helpful way to, to express the distinction between what the story originally meant and what it signifies for us. Often people, we talk about what does the story mean to you? But I think when we put it that way, we kind of confuse ourselves. We risk obscuring this point. That the meaning of the story, or at least it's, it's useful in some way or other to make this distinction, and this is the way I make it. 
the meaning of the story is something that was part of the act of communication between the person who wrote it and the, uh, and the audience uh, that was to receive it and to hear it. But what the story may signify can differ in all sorts of different contexts. So when Jesus said, peace be with you, he was not thinking about any of us feeling a bit fretful about the fact that it's the third week of the quarter and we've got all these things to do. But it's quite fine to say what that story, not what the story means for, for me, but what the story signifies for me. One way or another, we need to make the distinction between uh, the way in which a story may have one meaning, but it can have many significances. And we shall think some more about that with regard to Jonah and Hagar and Sarah and all that afterwards. Now go away for 20 minutes.